Can you maybe give us a very quick synopsis on like what is a mental block? I have a lot of parents reach out and they go, she's refusing to do it. And even on the medium beam, she's refusing to do her tumbling. And, yeah, I joke like it's someone cleaning their room, right? <laughs> yeah, I will not. Yeah. You know, I will not have my I, Brussels sprouts. I will not reach my goals today, <laughs> yeah, exactly. mom. Yeah, yeah. You know, I and, like being and so I like this whole getting stared at, yelled at, crying on the beam. I'm, I'm choosing this. So first of all, it's not a choice. It's a biological reaction that is based in the brain. It's a survival instinct. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Shift Show, where my number one goal is to bring you the tools, ideas, and the latest science to help you change gymnast lives. My name is Dave Tilly. Today in the podcast, I am so excited to have Rebecca Smith back on as she is launching a brand new book called Parenting Through Mental Blocks. And last year, we had Rebecca on, and she was one of the most popular guests we had in a long time, essentially chatting through a similar topic of what do you do with a mental block? How do you help? And kind of answering a lot of common questions. And, you know, as she explains in the podcast, she noticed that many parents and many coaches feel very kind of overwhelmed and confused on what to do when an athlete has a mental block. And so she kind of went through the labor intensive process of writing a book to help parents better understand this. And I wanted to have her on the podcast to kind of break these ideas down more and really help offer more context behind this, because I know this is something that still so many people struggle with, right? So I asked her some specific questions questions about, first of all, like what is a mental block? How do we understand that? And what are some of the common things that I think a lot of coaches and parents maybe do, you know, wrong? They're well-intentioned, but they don't really have the best tools or strategies to help with the mental block. So what are the things that she sees in her clinical practice that, you know, well-intentioned parents and coaches do, but they essentially just like, you know, do wrong. You know, they, they try to force things. They offer some bribe. They offer some like really intense, uh, you know, like chats about that and kind of focus on it. So maybe what are some things that people could learn to maybe step away from and not do and then obviously, what can we do instead to help out? What are some very useful strategies to actually overcome a mental block and help your daughter or son get through this really hard thing that many, many people experience? So we talk through all those kind of things, and then we kind of wrap things up at the end talking about, okay, we have our plan. We know what to maybe avoid, what to do. What do we actually do in the gym as practical steps to get over the fear of going backwards or get over the flyaway fear or get over some of the anxiety of competition and really help somebody get back in the saddle and feel comfortable with it? So it's a fantastic podcast. Very very, very great episode, lots of information, and please be sure to check out her book, Parenting Through Mental Blocks, which is out soon and will help many, many people. Enjoy. All right. I think I'm good if you are. How are you? I'm good. I'm, Rebecca, I'm actually awake on? and ready. <laughs> I know. Shout out to you for doing these at 6.30 your time, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, normal people get up at this time, so it's okay. I should not I know. Complain. I know. But there's a different <laughs> level of uh, hustle when you have kids, and I don't have kids, but when you have kids to probably deal with, you have probably somebody else asking for something, uh, you know, if you have a partner or a husband or whatever, if you have yep. you know, all that on top of, oh, by the way, I should launch a book. Oh, by the way, I have to do this podcast. Oh, by the way, I have to get behind the scenes stuff. So I know exactly yeah. what you're going through. <laughs> yep. It just never and we just do it with a smile. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, you know, I just actually, you know, probably uh, buried the lead a bit there, but new book uh, in route on some mental block things. What's where did that come from? That came from the last two years. I have been taking a different approach with mental blocks. Okay. Um, so I've been at this 10 years and for those first eight, it was all about how do we get the kids to be more confident? Mm. And so that worked some of the time, I would say maybe most of the time, but mm. there were these kids who stayed stuck. So we'd have these staff meetings, these coach meetings when, you know, at once a month, all of our coaches get together and we'd, we'd kind of jam on where are we stuck? What kid is still struggling? Where, where do we need peer support? And there were some kids that just could not break through. 
They could not get their skills back. They could not get their confidence back. And there were two things, two things that were were present in those kids. One of them was emotional abuse in their coaching situation. The Mm. other was a very involved parent. And this was not necessarily um, like a militant parent or sometimes there was, but it was a parent who was very emotionally involved in that skill acquisition. Yeah. So I started shifting my messaging toward parents. I had always had this parent training within my membership, but I really went hard into, okay, let's like parents, you need to start jumping on the trampoline with your kid. If you want mm-hmm. them to get their skill back, you need to take mm-hmm. them shopping. You mm-hmm. need to do, you need to watercolor with them. And they look at me like, I'm sorry, what? That's not, mm-hmm. <laughs> how is that yeah. possibly going to help my kid get their yeah. confidence back? But we started to see over time in my community that the parents who took a step back and connected the relationship with their kid and built this trust, mm-hmm. those kids started to get their skills back. Mm-hmm. It, Interesting. It, so that's when I was like, okay, this is important. Yeah. Because parents care and we I've got to give them this, you know, this insight that the solution looks nothing like the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's very helpful. And I'm I, I love already where this is going. And I think it's important to maybe unpack there's two clear paths here that what you said, right? So I don't know. Please change my thoughts if you're wrong. But if you're in a situation where you're getting an emotional abuse coach and there's something else going on, like I think it's more rare these days for sure, few and far between. But like the only solution there is leave. You know, like you have to report that person and leave the gym. There's no, I used to try to like dance around the issue and tell people that, but like, if you know something is wrong, it is not worth your kid's health. It's not worth gymnastics. It's not worth anything. You must, you know, take care of that situation professionally directly and then leave the gym. Like, and if yes, the immediate response is like, well, there's nobody that does high level gymnastics. This is the only place for level 10 and scholarships. doesn't matter. You should still leave. Like, I just have no more tolerance policy for that anymore. So, but the other side of that, um, I think is there's actually probably the vast majority of people are in that situation of they probably actually care a lot. You know, like, I think that's probably what comes to mind first is you don't, you think about, you know, the, the parent who's maybe screaming on the sidelines and is way too overinvested is emotionally kind of on their own tilt. But I don't think that's what I see the most. I think it's actually really great parents who really care a lot. And they have never done gymnastics. They've never, you know, they don't know what's happening. And they're just like thrown into this tornado of, you know, my daughter wants to do a back handspring or my daughter wants to do a double double or something. So am I, before we pivot more, is am I wrong in that assessment of like, you know, there's two kind of paths there and the, the, the latter is probably more manageable and dealable. Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. If your coach doesn't listen to you, get a better coach. If you don't feel safe, if your mama instinct or your dad instinct is saying, this is not a place for my kid. Mental health trumps all. It has to. I mean, I went through a very tumultuous young adult life as a result of not understanding consent, Mm. not understanding that I had a voice, not understanding that I had value independent from my performance. And that was all a direct result of, I'm going to say, quote unquote, normal coaching. Right. Old. I mean, it wasn't even as bad as I see. And I came out of that with, you know, having to make a lot of painful mistakes in my young adulthood that I want to prevent my kids from Mm. going through. Mm. So I, before I ever put my daughter in a gymnastics class in preschool, I vetted the culture. Right. I was like, I'm not going to risk my kid falling in love with something that's going to destroy her spirit and her body. And, and of course I have a different perspective that I was like, you know, very, very tentative and cruising into it. But anyway, so, so yeah, if your coach doesn't listen, uh, Jonathan Horton, my favorite quote, your coach doesn't listen, get a better coach. Um, but shout out Tom Meadows, by the way. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so that makes so, sense. So yeah, so back to the parents. Yeah, it is. It's the parent who I've I've had one woman I remember specifically who was like, I would chew off my left foot if my kid could get her back answering back. Yeah. All she wanted was for her kid to stop crying in the car every day after practice. Right. She wanted, and she saw, I have this kid that's full of talent and potential who loves this sport. And she's like, you know, just looks like she's dying inside because she can't do her skill. And, and mama's. We want to fix it. We want to fix yeah. it quick. Yeah. Like yeah. get on the Google and we fix it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. it doesn't get fixed. And then, you know, they're, they're like, I'll get you an iPad or, well, we're not going to Florida if you can't get it. Or why are we even doing this? Do you want to quit? They sort of have all mm. these standard lines, mm. all of which do the opposite of what they're intending to do. Yeah. And probably well-intentioned parents, if they're anything like maybe my brain used to go to is you take almost like an engineering approach to this problem, which is like, if X and Y are wrong, there's a Z solution. Let's just like find that and fix it. And then all will go away in the world. And uh, I think to set the stage for the rest of the conversation, I think it's really important that I noticed the most in coaching and working with a lot of parents that people, uh, you can't help what you don't understand. I think that's the biggest thing is you've never done gymnastics. You've never gone through a sport that involves flipping and backwards and upside down and stuff like that. But also you've never been in a sport where there is so much intense uh, spotlight, you know, on just you on floor, you know, by yourself. I think that people either take the path of they don't understand it. And so they don't ever really wrap their head around like how they can help the problem or on the, on the sadder part is that sometimes I think because people don't understand it, they, they mock it, they stigmatize it. They, they kind of laugh at it, you know, like, oh, it's just a mental block. Like just go, just go. Right. And I think that's really important for us to tease apart first is can you maybe give us a very quick synopsis on like, what is a mental block so that people, parents, coaches once and for all can understand that this is not something that someone chooses to do. This is like an automatic thing. Yes. And that's such a good point because I have a lot of parents reach out and they go, she's refusing to do it on the, even on the medium beam. She's refusing to do her tumbling. And, yeah. I joke like it's someone cleaning their room, right? <laughs> yeah. I will not, yeah. you know, I will not have my I, Brussels sprouts. Yeah. I will not reach my goals today, <laughs> yeah, exactly. mom. Yeah, yeah. You know, I like and, being and so, terrified. I like this whole getting stared at, yelled at, uh, crying on the beam. I'm, I'm choosing this. So First of all, yes, it's not a choice. It's a biological reaction that is based in the brain. It's a survival instinct that, and it's typically adolescence. That's who I mostly serve, but it happens in all ages. Um, and it's what happens is that a threat is detected in the brain. And, you know, if you were walking along, if you're on a hike, you're walking along and you arrive at a cliff all of a sudden, your brain's job is to freeze you so that you can look around and get more information and make a safe decision. Whoa, don't fall off the cliff. Okay, back it up. Or if you're walking through the kitchen and there's a flame on and you turn the second you register that flame, you're going to freeze. That's your brain's job to go, whoa, don't get burned. So that's exactly what's happening. It's instant. You're not standing there going, I think I should freeze before I hit this flame. You don't have time for that. It just, it just hits and you freeze. And it can be unnerving and it's supposed to be because your brain is going, alert, pay attention, there's a threat. It's supposed to be big. It's supposed to be emotional. It's supposed to be obvious that there's something to look out for. So the thing is, a lot of people go, well, she never got hurt. She didn't fall. So there isn't a threat. You know, you think about the cliff or the flame as like a physical threat where you're going to get burned or you're going to hurt your body. It's often in these adolescents, maybe that, maybe they got injured, but that's not the majority. It's There is a threat of pain and that pain can take a physical form or an emotional form. 
So if she has associated this back handspring with being left behind, her teammates moving up without her, not being able to compete at the first meet, not being perfect, not rising to this potential or talent that she's been told she has her entire life, that is so emotionally painful that the brain goes, stop, freeze. There's a potential for pain here, which obviously isn't helping because in order to get through the pain, you need to do the back handspring. But the brain doesn't know that. Brain doesn't care about competition season, doesn't care about anything other than there's a threat detected. And until we get more information, we're going to freeze. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I'd love to jump in there because something else I noticed, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is I feel as though at that age of adolescence, maybe like 13 to 17 is probably where we're talking the most. Um, but even younger too, is that the the social setting is so important, right? Because at that age, you are very much you're about friends and personal identity. And, you know, I remember like the the group of guys that I worked out with was really important to me in terms of like, we trained together, we hung out together. So I wanted to, you know, have a group of friends that was close. And in that age group, the social pressure is so much higher than someone who's maybe, you know, fully matured and is 25 and 30 and can make their own decisions. And like, yeah, I really don't care what people think about me. Um, I think that's sometimes uh, what I saw a lot of parents struggle with is when they are 30, 40, you know, it's very easy for them to say like, well, just don't listen to what like those people say, like, you know, like just like whatever, like just ignore those TikTok comments. But like, it's all, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it is very hard for an immature developing adolescent brain to just ignore the social status because everything is tied to that when you're a kid and it's really important for you to make a peer group. So I feel as though I saw a lot of people who, when they're on their own, they're doing their own drills, they're doing their own stuff. It was no problem. Like they were totally fine. But as soon as they had to show a routine as soon as they were in front of a bunch of people at a crowd or a meet, as soon as they were under the pressure, um, that's when it seemed to be much more pronounced when it was like really hard for them to go for a skill. And the reason I bring it up, not to belabor the point is because I think the uh, solution some people have coaches and parents who are well-intentioned is like, well, you just need more time under pressure. So they put the kid in that pressure situation all the time, instead of actually going back to base principles and figuring out like what's wrong here, what's the issue here. So, um, I don't know, can you elaborate or maybe your thoughts? Am I wrong there? Am I right there? Yeah. So there are two ways to overcome fear in this way. Um, one of them is desire. And desire is the temporary solution. This is the one that most parents try to go, well, she's not motivated. We got to motivate her with either threats or bribes or ultimatums or, and coaches, same thing. But she's not motivated. She's not trying, which is another misconception. She's trying, but she's freezing. She's trying harder than any kid in that beam rotation to hold it together, but it's just not working and she doesn't know why. Desire basically means you want to do the skill more than you want to stay safe. And that might happen at a meet. It might happen in front of that, you know, dominating coach that's like, you can't go home until you do this. They're more afraid of the coach or the judge than they are of the pain of actually, you know, not doing the skill. So I, so they go into what I call chuck and pray, where they just, they just throw it because they have to, they don't have another choice. Like they have to lift the car off the baby to get out of that situation and they do it, even though it might cause more pain later. That's, I think the solution most people see is, well, that's how you do it. You just got to want it. You got to try harder and you got to want it. So that's temporary. That's like a bandaid. And what happens, especially in higher level athletes. So when level nines and tens come to me, I almost always have to unlearn that chuck and pray instinct because what happens is that they have been not listening to their fear response so for so long that their fear response has had to get really loud so they'll hear it. And that stops working. So they stop being able to throw it in meets. 
what they used to be able to do is, well, I know if I can't do it in practice, I can at least throw one in a meet. I know I can. Well, that stops working after a certain point in every athlete. And that becomes really traumatic because they're like, wait, that was the only ace in the hole I had on this fear. So the other way to overcome this fear response is through confidence. And confidence is built slowly over time. Yeah. And when you got to meet this weekend, you don't have time for slowly over time. So you have to go back to what really matters, which is your brain doesn't care about the meat. You yeah. have to get to a place where your brain feels like it's safe. There's enough information to know that it'll be okay. And then you'll be, you'll be able to go. But if you've made this relationship with your brain so challenging where you're like, shut up brain, I have to do it. I can't, I, I have to do it now or else my dream relies on this. And then, you know, parents are reinforcing that and coaches are reinforcing that the kid just goes into complete shutdown. They start losing skills on other events because confidence is so, so low. Yeah. Yeah. I can give a very vivid example to pass this up from my own uh, situation. I won't say where this athlete came from, how she got to me, but let's just say she was in my lap as a level nine uh, on bars and she just could not do a straddle back. Like for some reason bars, she was really tall, like lanky. So beam floor, honestly vault. Great. You know, but like doing a straddle back and connecting everything was like really, really hard for her. And she was struggling in the beginning of season. And she, I literally remember her being like, she's like, can you threaten me with conditioning, you know, and that'll get me to go. And that's exactly what you're talking about is like, put something so high on the table that mimics, you know, high pressure of a meat. And that would go. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I was like, I don't care if you like, don't do bars whole season. Like I refuse to do that. And so instead what it was, was really going down to, like you said, you know, the fear of getting hurt, the fear of social pressure for her, it was tied to her college, um, aspirations. You know, she wasn't going to compete bars in college probably, but she wanted to be on the radar of coaches for the other three events and having a solid, you know, event she could train in case something happened. So we had to unpack all that and get through that. And like, literally we, like, she didn't do bars for, she probably didn't compete bars for the first three meets of season, just so we could literally go back to drills. Right. And this was like in October, November, when everyone's doing full sets on bars, everyone's competing, they're showing. And it was like, well, this is a situation, you know, when you do a straddle back timer, that will be when you would do a timer. Then you hop the low bar, you do the rest and you won't do the meet. And that's what it is. You know, like I refuse to let you break your neck, you know, on a straddle back. So we had to go all the way back to the beginning, but to, to that segue is I, I think we understand very much like what's going on, how it happens is painful. I'd like to maybe uh, give people permission to know what not to do and then talk about what maybe is more solutions to help. So in all of your uh, practice uh, interactions with people, what are the three things we should definitely not do for parents and for coaches when, you know, we see this mental block happening, kid comes home, you know, crying, like what, what's maybe some things to cross off the list and then we'll go to some solutions. Yeah. Number one, don't try to motivate them. The kid does not lack motivation. They don't. I mean, every kid who I've talked to about this, myself included, I did not, I didn't want to quit. I didn't want to be done. I just wanted the skill to work. It didn't work. I didn't know why. And I was in tears. Nobody knew what was going on. Everybody was like, just go, go or get off my beam, climb the rope. Um, then what, let's just quit. It was like trying to motivate was is not the thing. So everything that you're doing to try to motivate this kid, stop, first of all. Um, Another common thing that people do is, you know, just try to be really positive. Parents will be like, look, here's a video of you doing the skill. Look, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. So, and then their teammates are like, you got this. And coaches like, you did it. You've done this before. Just go. So everybody's being really positive. Meanwhile, this kid has this, you know, sense of despair in them, knowing, standing in that corner, getting ready to tumble, knowing 
it's not going to happen. I know it's not. And everybody's being so positive. And every time I look at that video of myself tumbling, it just reminds me of how I'm broken, how I I can't do what you're telling me I can do. That doesn't build confidence. I have never heard a kid say, when my mom shows me a video of me doing it, I feel better. So just don't. It, because you, what you want to do is acknowledge how they're actually feeling. Don't tell them how they should feel. Acknowledge how they're actually feeling because then they won't feel so alone in that despair. Mm. Um, and you know, that, that like permission to quit, I think is something that parents do a lot where they're like, Hey, if you're not having fun, we don't have to do this. No pressure. We don't need you to get a scholarship. We just want you to have a good time, which is a great thing for a parent to say. But what the kid often hears is my mom doesn't think I can get through this. Mm. They don't believe I Or I failed, right? Like, okay, I'm just going to throw the towel when I failed. Why try? Nobody believes in me. You know, and so what they really need is to be just kind of sat with in the difficulty of the situation. Mm. Like, buddy, this is hard. I'm so proud of you for sticking with it. You're so determined. The fact that you're still at this two years into it, like you're my hero. I'm so proud of you. Mm. That's not, you're so talented. Yeah. You know, leaning into that kind of fixed mindset praise is another pitfall is that a lot of people are like, well, she's got so much potential. She's so talented. And what that does is it actually puts the locus of control outside of the kid where they mm. feel like the only reason I'm good is because I was born this way, which mm. means if I'm not good, I wasn't born good enough. Mm. So there's something wrong with me. That was me. I had a fixed mindset. I was raised very fixed mindset. You're talented. You're smart. And then when I didn't feel smart enough or talented enough, I figured, well, I guess it's just run out and this is all I've got. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, this reminds me of a great conversation. I heard Simon Sinek have about like uh, sitting in the mud with people, he calls it. So yeah. like when someone comes to you with a problem and I'm very guilty of this, this is not like a adult, male, female, whatever. It's just like, when somebody comes to you with a problem, your first instinct is like, well, I want to help this person. I want to try to fix it. Right. And so you oftentimes listen for about eight seconds and then you give them a laundry list of things they could do. Or like, have you tried this? How about this? How about this? Let's do this. Right. And I think that the empathetic nature of people is sometimes I don't think people are maybe like ready is not the word. Maybe they don't want to deal with it just yet, but they just, they want to be validated and heard. And so I think that Simon's uh, explanation is like, sometimes people just want you to sit in the mud with them and like give them a place to vent and say like, this is hard and this is challenging. And, you know, I think everyone can think about a time when in their life when they needed a vent or a sounding board to be cathartic and just get, get it out first. And then once you lay out all the pieces, you can start to do like more of a, a digest and fig figure out like where you went wrong, what you can do. Um, and I think I learned the hard way the first five years that I started coaching, it was in fix it mode. It was like, as soon as you see a problem, let's do this drill, let's do this thing. Let's fix this thing. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's do this exercise. And instead I found that just giving someone 10 minutes, you know, after practice to just unload a bit and be like, this is so frustrating. I used to have this skill. I don't have it anymore. I, the meat's coming up. I'm so stressed out. And just being like, yeah, this is hard, man. You know, this is tough. And you know, as you get with older athletes, I think it's important to resonate on their level uh, I think if you speak to them in a language of like, I'm the person with all the knowledge who is going to, you know, be the gatekeeper to this. And then like, you're the person who's doing the skill. Like it's a weird relationship. I've become much more lax and casual with people, you know, I'd be like shit's hard, man. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. Like this, I wish I had an instant solution, but it's going to take time. And, uh, I'd be frustrated too. And it's hard. So like, yeah. so let it, let's let it sit. And then you let that sit for a couple yeah. of days and you come back with a fresh mind. Like, all right, got the dust out. Now, what can we do? You know? And I think that's mm -hmm. an important thing you mentioned that I really want to harp on is like, 
Just give them time to sit in the mud, right? Yeah. Don't let it become a pity party of every day we whine and complain and just upset. There's no mm-hmm. solutions. But at the same time, just as you need some venting, they need some venting. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Becky Kennedy, one of my favorite parenting gurus, she talks mm-hmm. about sitting on the bench with them. Like you have this schoolyard mm-hmm. full of benches yeah, and you're going to have the bench of I'm someone's best friend and you're going to have the bench of I got left out. And if you, if so parents are sort of like swooping them out of like, oh, don't sit on that bench. Oh, don't sit on that bench. And then eventually they go into their adult life where they're left out or mm. they're disappointed or they didn't get the job or they didn't mm. make the cut. And if, if you've allowed them to sit on that bench and you sit next to them and you just go, okay, here we are on this bench of, I didn't get to compete at the first three meets on bars. Mm. And you're just there with them. You're not trying to get them off the bench or get them to stand up on the bench or operate differently. They're just, there they are. You're there with them. You're feeling it with them. And now next time they have that bench to sit on, they know they'll survive it. They have more coping yeah. skills. They they have more self-belief as a result of surviving that difficulty versus you being like, it's fine. You need a snow plow. Like, it's easy. It's easy. We're fixing it. We're fixing it. I'm calling the coach. I'm emailing the teacher. I'm, yeah. you know. 39 private lessons will fix this. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to throw more money at this so that then they'll be okay. Yeah. Versus just going, it's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. Instead of every time they cry in the car, do you want to quit? Mm. And, and, and to that point, not to jump in, but I think it's important to just like feel the feels. You know, I think like when you're a kid, you want to avoid that anxious, that pit in your stomach, that sad feeling, that whatever. And much bigger rabbit hole, but like, it's, it's very easy in society to be like, well, like, well, like, don't worry about that. Like, just like, you know, focus, like, you know, just be mentally tougher. Right. And I think there's a skill, there's a skill to learning the learn tolerance of discomfort, right? Like, yeah, this is what it feels like to be anxious. Like, this is what it feels like to be a little sad. This is what it feels like to be upset or disappointed or, or frustrated. And like just living in it a bit, you know, I think is really okay because sometimes I think kids are so afraid of that emotional pain that they avoid it at all costs. Right. And they never learn that like, okay, it's, it's uncomfortable, but like, we're not dying. Like this pit in our stomach is not the best thing ever. Or like this, Mm -hmm. these thoughts are not the best thing ever, but like, let's find healthy coping solutions for this and develop a tolerance to this uncomfortable feeling because goodness knows every time you think about your routine, your heart rate's going to go through the roof and you're going to get that pit in your stomach. And um, yeah. So, okay. So I think I'm trying to make a track list. So like one is sit with them, sit on the bench, sit in the mud with them and be okay. Validate that Two Maybe is some healthier coping mechanisms of, of things we can do to kind of deal with that. Are we on track so far? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think something to point out based on the last thing you said was that parents are often afraid of their kids' emotions. Mm. If a parent is afraid of a kid's emotion, the kid is also going to be afraid of their own emotions. Mm. They're going to avoid those emotions. They're not going to want to try the back handspring because they know it could be painful. And mm. they're afraid of pain because you've showed them to be afraid of pain. Versus going, this is painful. I'm here with you. Yeah. I'm here. It's okay. I'm not afraid of your pain. I'm not afraid of your tears. I'm here to, I'm here for you to cry. Yeah. I'm here for you to be really mad and hate your sport right now. I'm here for it. I'm not afraid of it. And if a parent is just able to be there and be this neutral presence, this sounding board, that's where the kids get, they they no longer fear their mm-hmm. own fear. They don't have to fear their own sadness or anger. They know I have someone to go to with this who's not going to try to fix it. It's okay to feel. 
I'm going to process these emotions in a healthy way. Then I'm going to get a clean slate to go back instead of it being whack-a-mole of emotions. If you're always pushing them down, don't feel mad. Don't feel sad. Don't cry. Don't, you know, coaches, don't, we don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. It's like you're whacking them down and then they pop up, you know, when you're yeah. on beam or when you're getting ready to compete or when you're you know yelling at your parent for something very minor. It's like, those are the suppressed emotions that didn't get felt yeah. because we were too scared of them. They don't go away. They yeah. cause more problems. So when parents can stop being so afraid of their kid being uncomfortable and trust, this is this kid is tough. This kid, but not the kind of tough that's like, keep going on a broken ankle, kiddo. You know, it's yeah. like I can sit with discomfort. Mm. My kid can sit with discomfort. That's gonna set them up for ultimate confidence in life, not mm. you sending extra emails to the coaches and getting them to change everything in the routine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it's a really important uh, point to kind of double click on there is that like as a parent, as a coach, as an adult, I think there's a learned skill to uh, being okay with emotions that are going somebody else's emotions, somebody else's problems, because I think that was something that I learned was very hard in the beginning was, you know, when you want everyone to be happy and kind of like you and be good, like it's really uncomfortable when somebody else is having a tough time and you have to kind of walk through them. And so um, maybe there's some, some possible, uh, solutions here, whereas a parent, a coach or whatever, you learn some skills on, you know, communication and, you know, blank space is okay. Sometimes, you know, like that dead silence is sometimes fine to just let it marinate, you know, and, uh, maybe there's the learned skill of you having communication and, and that, but also the learned skill of you dealing with discomfort tolerance yourself. You know, I think a lot of people maybe parents, you know, kids don't come with a manual, you know, that's that stuff, but <laughs> sure don't. there's definitely times when you know, it's just being there and being like, okay, well, you know, I, I think it's going to be all right. And I think there's a, there's a, also a learned skill to reactivity. So kids very much model what we do and follow what we do. And so I think a lot of meets where coaches got a little bit more worked up, <laughs> you know, about scores yeah. and the kids and the kids react to that. So I think there's times when kids come to you with what they think is like an apocalyptic problem, <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. like the world is going to end if I don't do my beam series. And like, they come to you and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's all right. Like, it's all good. Yeah. So I think not being reactive and not being like, you know, overly emotional when these things come to you, I think is an important learned skill as a, maybe a third thing to help people out. Yeah. I mean, I'm just imagining uh, all the sweet, wonderful parents who, you know, come into my, my little Facebook group and they're like, my heart is broken. <laughs> she was making progress. And then she had a backslide. Yeah. I'm devastated. She's devastated. It's like, wow, yeah. drama. Yeah. And I get yeah. it. And so when, you know, when kids come to me and they've had a setback, I'm like, oh, good. Yeah. This is excellent. I'm yeah. so glad because setbacks are our greatest teachers. Yeah. We are going to find so much magical wisdom in this setback that is critical to you truly understanding yourself, your mind, your confidence. This is great. This yeah. is a, and I'm always, I always tell them like, I'm so glad you had a setback this week that is so fresh that we can dig into and find the clues of what's not working for you. Mm. This is valuable. And so when parents are like, oh no, a setback, a kid's going to go, oh no, a setback. This is bad. I lost my skill again versus going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody lost anything. It's just yeah. that we, we, a little dip in confidence was caused by something. Nothing's random. The great news about sports psychology is that nothing is ever random. There's always a domino effect. You can track back and go, Oh, I didn't get enough sleep. I wasn't eating well. Mm. I was sick for a week. 
I had to take a day off practice because I was sick. I came back in and felt weak. It was a meet in four days. I was pushing too hard. I wasn't listening to my brain. I was trying to go straight to high beam when I needed to go to low beam first to warm up. Mm. Like a five minute conversation, I can go, of course you didn't go for it. Of course you didn't. Like it makes perfect sense that you wouldn't have gone for it. And then they look at it and go, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. There's no crisis. And mm. let's get more sleep. Let's drop the bar on days where we don't sleep as much. Let's mm. communicate with the coach and say, you know, I'm feeling really weak today. Can I start on low beam? I mean, all of, then you've got this massive, this like just pile of solutions and wisdom that you've gained from this one setback. Like, let's yeah. not fear them. Yeah. Yeah, that's super good. And I think there's two more things that are bubbling up in my mind as we continue the conversation is I think we, we have the setup, we've 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 validated things, we have some emotional understanding. I think we're all in a good space of we get and we understand what's going on. We're not trying to force anything. And maybe we've developed our own discomfort tolerance to deal with this. But like at some point we have to get in the gym, we have to do back handsprings, we have to do, you know, vaults, we have to do bar releases, we have to do hard skills. So what's the what's the proper next step into actually doing things to cure the mental block or help the mental block? Yes. So I will say it again, the brain does not care about competition season. The brain only cares about keeping you safe. So the more that you try to conform the brain to the competition season, the more frustrated you will probably be. If you have a meet in two weeks, the, you are much better off going in with what you can do today than trying to force what you should be doing. And this all boils down to a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. If you go in today and go, I'm behind, I have to get up on high beam, I have to chuck it, I have to throw it, you're creating more threats in the brain, which will slow you down and make it so you absolutely do not have that skill in two weeks. The quickest way to not have a skill in two weeks is to try to force it today. So instead, you go in and you ask yourself, what can I do? You know, it's of course we default to, I can't do it. I can't go on high beam. I can't connect it. I can't tumble. I can't do back handspring, whatever that can't is. Instead of trying to force the can't to become a can, which isn't going to work, you can't rationalize your way through a survival instinct. You go, what can I do? Well, I could do it on the low beam. And then, and so I always, I, I encourage people to, you know, find the hardest progression that you can do confidently today. And that might be different than yesterday, different than tomorrow. But today, based on all of the thousand inputs in adolescent confidence, what can you do today? And then you go and you make numbers and you make them the prettiest, most consistent, technically correct numbers that you could possibly do. And then you repeat tomorrow and you take it one day at a time, one attempt at a time. And, and each of those, so, and then you've got, you know, the perfectionist is going to undermine their own confidence by going, but I'm not on the high beam, mm. but I'm, but I'm, it's not in a routine. The words out of my mouth. Yeah. Cause that, that's the question I want to ask next is like, I know many type A hardcore girls that I've worked with are guys that it's like, you know, you know, yeah, but I still suck. Like everyone else is doing it. Like, yeah, like too bad. It's not like, like I'm nowhere close. They could do 10 on the medium and low beam. Like, yeah, well, I'm not doing it in a meet. Yeah. Well, I'm not competing yeah. yet. Like, yeah, well, everyone else has it, not me. So what are some some uh, help to deal with those internal cruel thoughts? Yeah. So think of it like this. Like if you have a pass-fail mentality, that's perfectionism. You either are perfect or you fail. A lot of athletes kind of come from that place of if I'm not doing it perfectly in a routine, no wobble, it's a fail. And fear of failure is the number one cause of performance anxiety. 
So perfectionists are like paving the way for performance anxiety every day with their mindset. So if you're going, it's, you know, if you're not first, you're last, then you look at the kind of spectrum between where you are and where you want to be. And you go, okay, I did it on low beam, fail. Did it on medium beam, fail. Did it on a stacked high beam, fail. So you're you're building your confidence. I think of it in terms of piggy bank. You're kind of filling up your confidence piggy bank with all these reps, but you are you're undermining it. You've got cracks in your bank because every time you do something, you're like, it wasn't good enough. Mm. It wasn't good enough. So then you find yourself on like the, you're going up the down escalator. You're working, you're working, you're working, but your confidence isn't going up because you're not giving yourself credit for the effort and what's actually working. And the kids who get over their mental blocks the quickest are the kids who are not afraid to back it up, who are kind to themselves when they back it up. They go, oh, feels uncomfortable. Coach, I need a consult. You know, they communicate. Hey, I think I could do it over here. Great. Go make five. And there's no drama. And they actually feel like, hey, that felt good. Because Mm. what's happening is you're on the low beam, successful. You land it. You're safe. Your brain goes, oh. That was safe. Well, it's a little, it's just a little firework in the brain that goes, this is safe. Yeah. And then you do five more. Mm. This is safe. Tomorrow, you don't go to medium beam right away because that's where you left off yesterday. You go back to low beam. This is safe. This is safe. This is safe. And that starts to build only if you're giving yourself credit Mm. and you're allowing it to be a success because that's what it takes to build that, that confidence that lasts. Yeah. And you kind of, you carry that momentum of like, okay, this, then this drill, then this setting, then this drill, then whatever. And just a tidbit from the coaching side is I think there's a massive amount of value in parents communicating with coaches about this whole situation, whatever. But a lot of the kids that I work with, their mental blocks sometimes stem from technical issues or baseline level things. So, you know, not to, you wouldn't probably tell directly to someone's face because you want to be you know, so gentle about it, but like there's sometimes we're like, you just got to get stronger. You just got to get your shoulders more flexible. You just have to get better technique on where your arm should go. Like maybe you don't understand that your ears should be covered or you should look here, or this is where you're, you should feel your hips position. So there are many times when like a baseline level, like I can think of a girl that I work with who like had just like, she grew a lot, her shoulders got stiff and she just like, it was really hard to get her hands back to the beam and she would hit her shin, miss her hands. And she would obviously get a mental block from that. So like, yes, we went through all this situation, but at some point we had to fix her shoulder flexibility. Like there's, there's no way for us to get our hands back to the beam and the skill, unless we fix that. So don't be afraid to maybe use the coach's expertise and like, are there drills? Are there flexibility issues? Are there strength things that, you know, we can use as positive stepping stones on the process of when we go back to drills, we might have some extra time on our hands where we can come in 10 minutes early and work on these kind of things. So yeah, I wanted to mention that. And the last thing I want to end on is like, I, I have to note this because many people are going to say that, like you'd have a perfect parent, perfect gymnast who wants to do it, perfect coach, but everything that sometimes it comes from, it sounds like coaching from the stands, like going into the gym and telling a coach, you should work on this and you should work on this. And what about this drill? And you should do five of these. If I was a coach and someone came just heated, like, oh, my daughter has a mental block and you should do these drills. I'd be like, listen, <laughs> lady, lady, the bleachers are over there. Like one of us is coaching. One of us is a parent. I love you to death. But like, if you sit there and watch me do bar drills, I'm going to ask you to kindly remove yourself from the gym for a moment, right? Because yeah. you barking orders over the banister at me and what drills to do is not going to go well. So yeah, that's the last thing I want to bring up because the coaches, I can feel the emails typing away like, yeah, sounds good <laughs> to you. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on yes. that? Yeah. So any kid who's 10 or over, they are the one who's the direct line to the coach. Hmm. This is what I want you know parents to do is advocate encourage, empower your child to be the one to communicate with their coach. And, and 
And of course, if you see that a coach is doing something that is decreasing the confidence in the child, you know, they're leaving them on beam for 45 minutes alone and they can't go home till they do it. They're kicking them off the event. If you're seeing something that's obviously, you know, deteriorating your child's confidence, that's when you would have that that curious conversation. I talk about this in the book, kind of how to have a constructive, curious conversation where you go, hey, coach, what's what's your plan? I would love to know kind of what your plan is to help my kid get their confidence back. And then you listen. Parents, you listen. <laughs> You're not in there. It's not a finger pointing. It's, I want to know the plan. Awesome. That makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. Repeating their words back, allowing them to feel understood. Like, coach, I want to understand. Okay, now here's what I'm seeing on my end. Seems like there's a mismatch. You're looking for this outcome. This is what I'm seeing at home. So I wonder what we can shift. Okay, that's that's where I would bring the parent in. If there's something happening where you're like, there's emotional abuse, there's favoritism, my kid's being left out, my kid's being demeaned. Um, but you know, when it's just run of the mill, my kid is afraid. It's the athlete's job to say, coach, I really want to be able to do that on the high beam right now, but I don't, I don't think I'm confident enough yet. Mm. Would it be okay if I started over here or would it be okay? Can you stand there? So it's, it's teaching kids how to communicate is something parents can do role play. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't do that, instead of, you know, saying, I can't coach says, why not? You say, I don't know. And you cry. That's one idea. That was my strategy. I just stand on the beam and cry until someone realized I couldn't go. And we're like, what's the problem here? The kid goes, coach, I want to, yes, I want to be able to do that. And for right now, I think I might need to start over here. Would that be okay? Yeah. And and then coach can say yes or no, or how about this? Or, well, we don't have enough mats for that, or I can't stand there and spot you. Why don't we try this instead? But mm-hmm. creating that ability to communicate in your child, that is going to get them through their fear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, um, I'm trying to think of like, there's there's a handful of parents that I've worked with on the coaching side and PT side or whatever that are like, I'm like, man, what did you, like, what did you do to like, this kid is great. Like they work super hard. They're going through it. But like, I'm really impressed with like this, the entire situation of like the kids, like, you know, confident and talks to themselves and is willing to deal with problems. And I I'm thinking back to what happened is that they approached me in a separate closed meeting with just me and the mom or just me and the dad. And like the dad and the mom first started with like, listen, I know it's probably something my daughter's doing. Like, like I, I understand that like, she's probably the root of something going on here, but like we have a problem. We're trying to fix it. So like, I wanted to meet with you and just touch base about like, Hey, this is the situation. She's coming home. She's crying. She's really upset. Um, maybe you don't see that at practice because she's putting on a, a mask or a face, but like, that's the reality of what's going on. And, you know, they want to use the situation as an opportunity for both coach and parent to mutually help develop the kid's skills and just like overall, like human level things. And so that happened first, which really set the stage because now when I go into the coaching side, I know that when I see something brewing, I'm like, Oh, I remember what's going on here. Yeah. And it's a, it's kind of a joint partnership where like, you're both trying to teach the kid skills and communication and regulation and coping and that kind of stuff in a healthy way. And so then like, you can help that on the other side. And that's when it comes down to, okay, this is the accountability of the kid. Like, I need you to talk to me about this. I need you to tell me what's going on. I need you to kind of like, let me in and like what you're feeling, what's happening and you can work on it together. So yeah, I, I was most impressed with those parents who were willing to take accountability for their own kid that they realized the kid is probably part like, yeah, if you don't come in and do your strength and don't do stuff like you need to take a uh, responsibility for that. But when a parent can talk to a coach in a separate situation outside of the gym without tempers, kind of like going nutty when you're in the middle of a coaching rotation, um, yeah. it helps a ton. It really does. And then from there, you can kind of move forward. And, and, and the last thing I will end this on is 
what do you do when you are as a parent are wonderful and you're trying to do the right thing and your coach maybe is not receptive to all this we talked about, you know, understanding mental block, understanding progressions, understanding drills. Maybe they come from a mindset where it's like you stood there on the beam and you did it until you did it. And then you had it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like how we started the episode. Um, yeah. Find a better coach. True. Full circle. Yeah. I mean, I go to the source first, you know, like talk to the coach. Don't go to the owner first. Talk to the coach. Have that curious conversation. You know, see if you can come up with some goals. Like, hey, could it would it be okay to let her do some more of these drills, or can she use a mat for a little while? Or, yeah. you know, would that be okay? Um, have that that curious where you're trying to understand the coach. If nothing changes, go to ownership. If nothing changes, start gym shopping. Yep. Find a place where you where your child will feel heard, valued, and like it's okay to struggle. Yep. And that and that she's safe he or she is safe to speak up and let their coach know what's going on and that they'll get some kind of collaborative response. Yep. That's really important. That's great. And I think that's a great way to end. And uh, yeah, there definitely are those gyms and coaches out there. I know many, many, many of them, the vast majority of people are wonderful and want to help. So I think it's a great way to uh, button up there, but tell us more about book. Where can we find book? This will come out, I think the week prior to book. So we'll include some links and stuff, but give us the deets. Yep. It's called Parenting Through Mental Blocks, How to Get Your Happy Athlete Back. Great title. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's the process. It's sort of the 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 whole manual to helping an athlete who's struggling with this phenomenon, building trust within them. Nice. It, a lot of, and you know, how to determine if the child's being abused, if it's an emotional abuse situation, that's all in there because it's so critical. Exactly mm -hmm. what to say, what not to say. Um, and with that book, there's so I put together a list of like crazy long list of resources, um, like 50 open-ended questions you can ask. So that way the parent has kind of like the full manual on this is my role yeah. in helping my kid to get their confidence back. Yeah. Well, it's awesome. I can't wait for people to hear it and see it and read it and do all the things, but uh, we'll include the links. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and giving us a little debrief here, a little update. Thank you so much, Dave. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to that episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it and got a lot of value out of it. I just wanna let you know before we sign off here that a couple things we'd love for you to do. So one is please just make sure that you rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you're listening because that really does help the episode grow quite a bit. And then second, if you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you left us a review as well and told us what you liked about it. You know, what information was useful, what things were not useful, would you like to know more about, what guests you wanna have on in the future. And then also as you kind of go about your day, if you found something really useful, just toss it up on social media. We love to hear from people on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, all the different websites that they're using for social media. Facebook is great too. But yeah, let us know what you like, because honestly, the podcast comes from people who just tell us what they're finding useful. And that's how we create the next set of content. So yeah, tag us in the podcast or tag us online, whatever you're doing it, and uh, let us know what you think. Thanks.